And welcome back, pool fans from across the country and around the world. You're listening to American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this week. It is May the 7th, 2015. And of course, in the headlines this week, we have an exciting announcement about the uh, Atlantic Challenge Cup. The, uh, the team has been chosen that will represent the United States in the matchup. Uh, for those of you that have not been keeping up with this, this is a new event to be held July 1st through the 4th. It is a Moscone Cup-style competition, except the participants are juniors. And the, the team has been chosen, so we're really excited to hear that. Um, the starters that we expect to see on the team, Tyler Brandon, age 18, of Harvard, Massachusetts. Nick Evans, age 18, of St. Peter's, Missouri. Joshua Franklin, age 17, from Illinois. Drake Nipoter, Nipoter, sorry if I said that wrong, age 18, from Illinois. Taylor Hansen, age 16, from Minnesota. And April Larson, age 15, from Minnesota. And we've got some alternates, just in case everything doesn't work out. Uh, River Burke, 18, from Illinois. Manny Perez, 17, from Kansas. Serena Black, 16, from Illinois. Taylor Reynolds, 17, from Maine. Yep, it's got a great lineup, some strong players in there. And, uh, you know, I love the fact that they've included two girls on the team. That's just outstanding. And it's it's a really good twist. I like the way that they've done that. And uh, also in the headlines for this week, the AccuStats Make It Happen uh, match. It's a one-pocket match scheduled for the June uh, the 25th to the 28th. The uh, players have been chosen for that as well. We're looking at um, Alex Pagalion, Shane Van Boning, Efren Reyes. Scott Frost, Justin Hall, and Danny Smith. It is going to be a round-robin event. Everybody is going to play everybody at Sandcastle Billiards in uh, Edison, New Jersey. So that promises to be some outstanding one-pocket. If you guys uh, hadn't already signed up to watch it, by all means, uh, I recommend it because it's going to be some outstanding pool. So anyway... This week, we are going to get right to it. Um, We've been talking to uh, some tournament promoters. And this is the second part of a two-part series uh, about some of the best practices for holding an event or holding a tournament. Last week, uh, we talked to a couple of the gentlemen about some of the smaller events. This week, we're talking about some of the larger events. So uh, we've had the opportunity to talk with uh, Ozzy Reynolds of CSI, and uh, Alan Hopkins, who hosts the Super Billiard Expo. And, you know, we really got a lot of great information out of both of them, Uh, some intriguing conversation, so stick around for that. We'll be right back to you with Ozzy after your one-minute pool instructor. Hi, I'm Scott Lee. Hey, and I'm Randy G. And welcome to the One Minute Pool Instructor. So what do we got today? Well, Randy, 
You know, we've been talking a lot about the uh, the teaching opportunities that uh, exist both here and in uh, China and other places, and we certainly have uh, the Professional Billiard Instructor Association, yeah, the PBA, of, of which yeah. we are very active members. Let's talk about how you become an instructor. Oh, wow. Yeah, because we sure could use more. Oh, I mean, boy. there's so many good people out there. We teaching. could use a hundred times more uh, than we have. We just talked about it this morning. What are there? A million? If there were a million people. Uh, in this country? Yeah. And there are. We, that, we, that would take instruction, that have the time, the opportunity, the money, and the desire if they can find someone to teach them. Yeah, we're the shortage, not not the student. Right. We're on the shortage. And so what's the first step that a person has to take to join the PBIA? Well, the first thing they need to do is they need to come to pool school because that's where you really get a base uh, knowledge uh, for, number one, how to improve your own game, and number two, start learning how to teach somebody else. Okay, and is there a, a cost Absolutely. Okay, Nothing's free in this world. Oh, right? yeah, there's, just... there's no free lunch. Right. And, and uh, basically the, uh, the PBIA sets a minimum fee of about $800 for the instructor course, but instructors are free to charge whatever they want, and there's a, there's a, a pretty good spread out there. Yeah, And, and so uh, the first thing you do is you find a, an advanced or a master instructor who can train you and you either come to their school or maybe you maybe someone comes to your city and holds a, a three-day program. I know I travel around the country and, and do individual three-day programs sometimes, and you and I teach the three-day schools where we have both students and instructor candidates as well. Yeah, those are fun. They are. So now you mentioned advanced and master. So is there an entry-level name that they come into? There is. It's called recognized. And that's the entry level. Now, and it has you, nothing to do with their teaching no, skills. No, it has nothing to do with their teaching skills. It just means they're now in the program. Right. And, and we have a, um, a means to uh, achieve an upgrade uh, quite quickly. And it's really based on how much you teach. We want people who love to teach like oh, we do. Oh, amen. And, and uh, so if you like to teach, if you have the opportunity to teach a lot, you can actually gain an upgrade very quickly. Then that upgrade is called what? Well, you go from a recognized to certified, certified to advanced, and advanced to master, and there are different levels of uh, requirements for each uh, advancement in the program. I see. So then the top two levels are able to then certify new instructors. That's correct. But they recognize and certify cannot do that. No, they can't. And the mm -hmm. real job of a master instructor is to teach teachers. Yes. Oh, I agree. And I agree. That's, that's what it was for. We're all advanced instructors. Yeah, right. Just some of us are master because we bring more uh, students or, or teachers into our program. Well, and as you well said, we have such a shortage of teachers now that really it's the master instructor's uh, responsibility to get get out there and train new teachers. So is there a website out there? I think there, there is. There is. PBIA has a website. It's called playbetterbilliards.com. That was playbetterbilliards.com. All one word. And you can go there and you can search out uh, an instructor in your area. Uh, you can also find out what level they are and you can find uh, places to go. There, you can also uh, look at people like myself who travel the whole country, who will come to you in your home, in your pool room, in your private club, 
and, and work out a program, whether it's private instruction or a instructor training program. Yeah, and I do two schools a week, literally, and, and so there's a lot of opportunities to anybody within a couple hundred miles of Dallas. You to, betcha. Uh, but there's people like that all over, and the there PBI, are. the website shows that for them. It, yes, it does. All right, so uh, there's recognized, certified, advanced, and master. Yep. And uh, both you and I are master instructors, have been for hundreds of years. <laughs> Golly. All right. Um, what else should we uh, mention about the PBIA? Well, you know, a lot of people say, well, why, why should I become an instructor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or why should I become certified? Mm-hmm. I mean, golly, you and I know many really good people out there who are not part of our program who that's teach true. very good people. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And basically, the answer is that the PBIA is an accredited organization. Yes. It's a professional association much like the Professional Golfers Association. PGA, right. You don't have to be a PGA golf pro, but most everybody is yep. because it is the association to belong. And that's yeah, and, kind of what we've got well, here. Plus they have accreditation uh, uh, formulas there. I mm -hmm. mean, you, you can't do this unless you're really a good instructor. So. Right. And, and you know what? The PBIA is open to anybody. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter what your style of teaching is, you can become part of the PBIA just by joining the association. So there's a small fee and then uh, they work out from there. Absolutely. And, uh, and every year they have to renew a few things and, and okay. All right, well I like that. Uh, um, if anybody out there was ever interested in becoming a certified instructor, um, <clears throat> there's how you do it. Well, you can you go to playbetterbilliards.com or you contact Randy or myself or any of the instructors out there that you might know and they can tell you how the program works. Yep. It's a fabulous program. We need to grow it about 5,000%. Oh, well, we'll never catch up with the students. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll be busy for as long as we want to teach. That's true. Fortunately, we love it, so we'll probably be out here when we're walking in canes and yeah. wheelchairs. Wheelchair, yeah. <laughs> All right, for the One Minute Pool Instructor, I'm Scott Lee. And Randy G. And we'll see you later on American Billiard Radio. All right, we're back, everybody, and I'm talking with uh, Ozzy Reynolds from CSI, Q Sports International. How you doing, Ozzy? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. You know, I've been meaning to ask you, uh, were you named after Ozzy Osbourne? <laughs> I get that a lot. Uh, uh, no, I, I know. I, I wish we were face-to-face -face because I'd show you my ID. <laughs> my middle name is, in fact, Osbourne. Really? That Ozzy Osborne Reynolds. Reynolds. I cannot believe that. You cannot that. make that up. That is too funny. That is too funny. I thought, you know, maybe it was just uh, a cruel joke and your real name might have been Oswald or something, you know, but... Uh, well, it may be a cruel joke, but I can thank my father for it. He named me <laughs> Ozzy Osborne Reynolds. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> The, the good thing is uh, it makes identity theft a little more difficult. It really does. It really does. And, well, I, you know, I run into the same sort of fun with my name, too, because of the whole Bond thing, you know, people, James Bond this and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> sometimes it's fun, but sometimes it's a pain in the butt, you know. that That's that's awesome. I, I, yeah, if, if I ever meet your dad, I'm going to give him a high five. So 
<laughs> that that's pretty awesome. Okay, anyway, so we're supposed to be talking about uh, uh, we started last week on this um, the subject of best practices for um, hosting or holding events and tournaments and the like, and we covered some of the smaller uh, type stuff last week. So this week we're talking with you, uh, Alan Hopkins, and um, we're going to talk about some of the larger type events. And, um, you know, obviously we don't need an instruction booklet, but for the fans, the listeners, the participants, and the players, they probably want to know what's on your mind when it comes to running stuff like this. So tell us, you know, if you had to sort of prioritize what are some of the things that are the most important when you're hosting a big event like that? Oh, well, um, well, actually, this is a, it's actually a pretty good topic because I think a lot of pool players and pool enthusiasts perhaps don't understand everything that goes into putting on one of these types yes. of events. Right, right. Um, it's bad enough when you're doing a regional tour tournament that runs on a Saturday and Sunday. Uh, but when you move into one of these large-scale events that span a week and a half in a large casino convention area, right? It can get pretty demanding. Sure. Um, and I could I could probably ramble on and give you a list of you know twenty of the most important things to consider, <laughs> yeah. but right, that would be boring and we'd lose everybody. So I've, I've narrowed <laughs> it down to what I consider the the big three. Okay. And the big three would probably be different depending on which promoter you talk to. That's right, right. That's true. Um, the first thing that popped in my mind when you asked me this question was, first and foremost, you got to have sufficient notice. Sure. That's kind of a no-brainer, um, particularly for our big show, which is the BTA Pool League and USA Pool League National Championships. People need a lot of time to prepare for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, during the summer, they've got they have to figure out a lot of a lot of logistics, such as maybe they have kids that are not in school. What are they going to do with their kids? Right. They have to book flights. They have to book the hotel. They got a plan to take off work. Exactly. There may be other tournaments that they're going to attend before that, right. and they have to juggle vacation time. There's just a lot that they have to do. Sure. And what we do, our, our big show is in July. We actually release. 99% of the information in December. Yeah, yeah. That's very important. Okay, so advanced notice is absolutely. I guess that probably goes hand in hand with with uh, what uh, uh, Jay Helfert was talking about as far as selecting dates. That's its own, you know, conundrum. But obviously that has to be done in advance, like you said, far enough in advance where... Uh, People can take all that the time that they need. You can't just be popping up at the last minute and saying, "Guess what? We have a world championship." You know, so sure, yes, sure. And and selecting dates is a little different, but it is related. Yeah. And what works in one area will absolutely not work in another. Yeah, yeah. This is very true. This is very true. So plenty of advance notice, and then yep. um, you know. Well, you know, I'm going to let you talk. I'm sorry. I won't interrupt you. Go ahead. So what's what's your uh, number two in the big three there? Number two, I have consistency. Okay. And I say that a little tongue-in-cheek because I think CSI has been has violated this one in the past, <laughs> <clears throat> particularly with its open or pro events. Okay. There's a lot to be said for consistency, and you don't want to keep things the same 
if they don't work, you always want to experiment, sure. see what works, make improvements. I'm not in any way advocating to keep things the same just for the sake of keeping them the same. Sure, sure. But you run into a real problem when you have this merry-go-round of events every year and there's no consistency. Right, right. Um, for, for example, when I say CSI has violated that one, in just the last three years, we, we've had, starting almost three years ago, we had the U.S. Opens that were played on nine-foot tables. Mm-hmm. Last year, we had the CSI Invitationals. And this year, we're having the U.S. Opens played on seven-foot tables. Mm-hmm. Those are three very different events in three years. Right. So cons- when I say consistency, it means try to strike the right balance and give it a chance to succeed. Sure, sure. May, may not be completely successful in year one. Sometimes it takes a little time. Yeah. But consistency means a lot, uh, particularly in this industry. Well, it does because for for a lot of reasons, but for primarily so that people know what to expect uh, from the events and what, you know, as far as the way things are going to operate, uh, it it's difficult enough for some folks to, like we were talking about, to even plan to go to some of these things with even and even with advance notice. Um, and it's certainly going to be that much harder uh, if if everything's different every single time. So absolutely, and and there's a whole laundry list of things that we want to change. And I'm not talking about radical changes. It could be something as simple as the name of one of our divisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. For example, we offer the leisure division for the lower-skilled players. Mm-hmm. I don't like the word leisure. I think it's confusing. I'd like to change it, but you, you got to be careful. you got to make those subtle changes sure. so that you don't confuse people. They may think it's a, a completely different event. Yeah, that is true. That is true. That's very true. No, I understand. that, And, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that consistency is important also in that not just that can they know what to expect as far as when they're at the event, but they can also know what to expect as far as from year to year, the same thing happening. Um, we have that same sort of philosophy here with this program. You know, if we did it once every three or four months, you know, th- then people aren't expecting it. They're not waiting for it. They're not anticipating it happening. So we try to be here every week with a good program for that exact same reason, consistency. It, uh, it gives people something reliable to turn to again and again and again. So yep. Even if you have to have someone like me on, right? <laughs> Even if we have to stoop. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's funny, but, I mean, it's cute to joke about it, but uh, certainly you guys are relevant, most certainly, in the realm of large tournaments. So, you know, when it comes up to this subject, there's, you know, it's you'd be hard pressed to find more experienced promoters than CSI. And I, you know, I like you and everything, but I'm not saying that just to toot your horn. It's I'm that's that's the reality of it, you know, is that there is not but a handful of truly qualified promoters in this country right now. And, you know, certainly we could use more, but uh you guys have been doing this for a long time, and so, you know, obviously you've been around the block. All right, give us number three. Number three, I think, is the most important, 
and it's it's kind of a, it's a broad category, and I have some subtopics, but it's build strong relationships. Hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Now it it takes a lot, and that's an understatement. It takes a lot to put these events together, and it's certainly much easier if you can build strong relationships yeah. with the people that you need along the way. Absolutely. And I'll just name a few. This is just a few. I could have labored over this longer and listed a lot more, but you know, some of the big ones that come to mind: uh, the hotel, sure, the, the venue. You know, most most of these tournaments are now in casinos, and and it's that way for good reason. Sure. But but you need a strong partner and ally in the hotel. Yes. Sponsors. Without the sponsors, the event cannot happen. Right. And you need strong relationships with your sponsors, not not any kind of friction or static. Sure. Exhibitors. Without the exhibitors, you certainly don't have much of a show. That's These true. These are the too. guys doing queue repair and selling shirts and selling pool cues and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. Your su- your suppliers. Yeah. Now people, pe- most people will not understand the number of suppliers you need for an event like that. <laughs> yeah. And I'll just list I'll just list some of them. Pool tables, bleachers, power, audio, pipe and drape, floor plans, permits, printed materials, chips. We do tournament chips every year at our big show. Photography, tournament direction, computer programmers, tables, chairs, rigging. I could go on and on and oh, yeah. on. Each one of those is a different supplier. And if you can build a strong relationship and keep those people year after year, it certainly makes it a lot easier. Oh, yeah. Absolutely true. I uh, Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny. That that reminds me uh, of a... Um, a, a I, I'm going to put people to sleep telling this story, but it's short, so that'll be a good, <laughs> be a good thing. Um, I used to uh, be in a business where we had to deal with uh, gosh, at least a dozen different companies every day. Kind of like what you're talking about. You've got your vendors and you've got the, all the different things that you talk about. And I never really realized it uh, or until somebody pointed it out to me um, how important it is to even on the smallest levels to make these people happy because of how much easier they can make your life. If you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, if it's Absolutely. it's not just the relationship that makes it easier, but you're also saving yourself time and money by not having to go find someone else to do that job. So sure. Well, take take one of the simplest that I that I mentioned there: printed materials. Sure. Well, if we have to go out and find a new printer for our event program, for example, right? That may not sound like a big deal, but somebody's got to look up. Uh, other suppliers in the area. Mm-hmm. We've got to get pricing. We've got to understand how they work. We've got to talk about lead times. Yes. Things that we already know with our existing supplier, now we have to go through all that again, and that's man hours and time distracted away from other productive things. Exactly, exactly. So it's huge. And then the last one under Build Strong Relationships, and probably the most important, are our members, Yeah. the people that are going to participate. You know, it's easier to keep a member than it is to get a new one, right? right? That's the old right. adage in business, and, yes. and we need to give our members value sure. when they make the commitment, most of them flying out here from somewhere, 
mm-hmm. uh, either other parts of the country or other countries. Yeah. And we want them to have a great experience. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. So those are my big three. No, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna press you for one more, and and I'm gonna bring up one more. I guess is what I'm gonna say. To me, and I could, I could be wrong, uh, and you can correct me happily if that's the case. Seems like, in addition to the the things that we've just discussed, is it not paramount? Is it not most crucial that you plan? for everything to run smoothly. And and I'm talking about that I mean that's a pretty broad statement, but planning the actual um the specifics during the event as far as the scheduling of the matches and the information dissemination, like how to keep things moving during out, throughout the process of the entire event. What is the trick to that? Is it just plan and plan and plan some more? Uh, well, you, you can't understate the value of planning. And at times it may seem like a waste of time. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a tendency to say, oh, we, you know, this is the 40th, you know, or the 39th BCA Pool League National Championships. What could go wrong? Yeah. Well, you really do. Ha- you have to sit down and almost run through the event in your mind as if you're doing it. Right. Um, so, so planning is paramount. But one thing you said that I'll probably take the reverse position on, you said the words plan for everything to run smoothly. <laughs> no, plan well, for everything really, to go wrong. You want, yeah. You want to plan so that things do hopefully run smoothly. Yes. But, but you want to have backup plans in place under the assumption that things are going to go wrong. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And you want right. to be able to rectify those very quickly, not on the fly. Right. Yeah, Mark and I discussed that briefly last week, the the, the peril and the risk. And we were talking about just small events, you know, how some of these guys that hold these uh, smaller events, how tedious it is whenever you're depending on your table supplier to show up or a mechanic to show up or you have a power outage or, you know, so things that you may take for granted that could just annihilate the whole thing from ever taking place. So I, I I think the planning aspect of it seems a little profound to say plan. Well, that's kind of like, duh. But like you said, you might want to sit down and run through some worst case scenario situations so that you can rectify them as, po- as soon as possible. because Yeah, and, and not to turn a long conversation into something longer, but I'll <laughs> add on to planning by saying our planning for our next BCA Pool League Championships will begin the day after this one ends. Right, right. And specifically, it will begin with a lessons learned meeting. Yeah, which is crucial, and it's little things. Like one of the biggest lessons we learned last year, we had a great system in place where people would receive text messages on their phone to notify them of when and where they play. Hmm, okay. Sounds really cool, right? Yeah, it sounds that way anyway. All right, here's the problem. Everybody has a different service provider. You (laughs) might have Sprint, you might have Verizon, you might have whatever. Yeah. And that service may vary. In Las Vegas. Yeah. 
If you have Sprint, your text messages might take a little longer to come through. And people become dependent on that. They no longer want to check the boards. They assume they're going to get a text message on time. Right, yeah. And it goes out on time, but they don't receive it on time. Yeah, yeah. And it, it caused a huge problem. So one of the first lessons learned that were brought up in our Lessons Learned meeting was get rid of that. It sounds great, but it's just it causes more problems. Right, right. Well, you know, and, I, and I'm just going to go off on a tangent. It would be easier... I mean, that's a brilliant idea in theory, but like you said, I can understand. Plus, you've got the issue of people being in buildings and stuff that cause interference and yada, 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 and all that other kind of stuff. Absolutely. If it weren't for the cost involved, it would almost be easier. Well, it would be easier if you used one of those pager type systems that, like the restaurants use, you know, where they give you one of the little flashing devices to take with you. But. You know who's going to spend the money on all that kind of stuff? So that's yeah, that would be great, but I don't think anybody's willing to pay for it. <laughs> I know that that'd be a hell of a lot of money. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so um, I that's superb information, and um, I hope that at least a few people hear this and think a little bit harder about uh, the time and trouble that's involved in uh, in putting together some of the events, the scale that you guys do. Um, what I'm going to do now is, is just stir the fire, pour a little bit of gasoline on there. <clears throat> We've had some, uh, some comments lately showing up on, on AZ Billiards after you guys made the announcement for this year's, uh, the U S open, uh, is it 10 ball and eight ball? Is that right? Or n- that is correct. 10 ball and eight ball. That's right. I was trying to think for a second if that was right. Yeah. Uh, so the announcement was made uh, for the U.S. Open 10-ball and 8-ball, and it's going to be on 7-foot tables. And, oh my gosh, you, you would think that uh, somebody just stole their best friend. Now they're... Uh, the end of the world is I know, the, the end, end of the, the world, world is nigh, absolutely. Um, you know, I had, I'll be honest, I had the same reaction that some of these guys had. Not this time, but I've had this reaction before. And let me clarify my my position on this. Personally, I prefer to play myself. If I had the opportunity to, I would always play on ten foot tables. That's just me. Uh, I know that you know there's people screaming, running from the building at this point for me saying that. I prefer to play on ten foot tables. Clearly. There's not that many of them around, so I don't have a choice. I get to play on ten foot, or excuse me, nine foot, or eight foot, or bar boxes if that's what's there. So, I just want you know the people listening to understand that this is not m- me trying to take sides with anybody. However, I used to have the same reaction as far as oh my god, major tournament on seven foot tables, but somebody on the forum pointed this out to me. And, and and now I realize it's the same the competition is the same no matter what size table is it's on it, it that you can debate how easy it is or how hard it is to play any given game on any size table that's not the point both people are playing on the same size table so they both are having the same issue in other words I'm, I'm botching my own description it's not any easier to play Darren Appleton on a nine-foot table than it is 
to play Darren Appleton on a seven-foot table. There's no difference. Your, your competitor is still going to be just as easy or just as hard to beat, no matter what the size is. That's my take on it. So it doesn't bother me so much to have a competition on this size table because, like I said, your opponents are not going to be any easier. So anyway, I've said enough. Please justify to the fans out there and the detractors out there, why would um, CSI choose to hold a, a nationwide event on a seven-foot table as opposed to something else? Uh, yeah, um, I, actually, I really appreciate the question, and uh, I want to say that I respect and understand both sides of the issue. Sure. And like you, I, I really am a nine-foot guy. Gotcha. I prefer myself to play on nine-foot tables. I have a nine-foot table in my house. Right. And prior to moving to Las Vegas, I don't think I played on a seven-foot table maybe a handful of times in the last 15 years. Right. My regional tour, the Action Pool Tour, uh, back in Virginia in the Maryland area, our tournaments are primarily on nine-foot tables. Um, and it works well there. But I am in a shrinking minority. And it's that way for very good reasons. And if you'll allow me a little bit of time, I'll go through the reasons. Sure, go ahead. First and foremost, nine foot, and I'm going to lose some people automatically, but hopefully they'll stick around long enough to hear me hear me out on this. <laughs> nine foot tables are too expensive, and I don't mean that solely from a promoter standpoint. I mean that in general. They cost a lot more to produce. They take up a lot more real estate, which mm -hmm. is bad for pool room owners, mm -hmm. and they cost a lot more to ship. Mm -hmm. For example, we can get 40 seven-foot pool tables on one truck. We can only get 16 to 20 nine-foot tables on that same truck. So that's about half. About half, maybe even a little less, a depending little... on what like, part and how you load. Right, right. Huge, huge difference in cost, especially if you're someone like CSI or Allen Hopkins who has to pay to have these tables shipped around the country. Yeah. We need over 300 pool tables for our, our uh, BCA Pool League and USA Pool League National Championships. That's a lot of trucks. That's a lot of tables. <laughs> and if you have to double that now because people have some grand notion that it should be on nine-foot tables, it's simply not sustainable. Yeah. And that's why you see a lot of these nine-foot table tournaments disappearing. Mm -hmm. It's not sustainable. So cost is a huge factor. Another factor is nine-foot tables are becoming much, much harder to find anywhere. Mm -hmm. A lot of pool rooms have closed, uh, especially since 2008 when the economy tanked. Mm -hmm. The rooms that did hang in there, a lot of them are replacing their nine-foot tables with seven-foot tables. And why? Because they want league players in there so that they can continue to stay in business. Yeah, that's true. League play is holding a lot of these pool rooms up. And without it, they would disappear as well. True. Another factor is whether me, I, I'm a nine-foot table player myself, and that's what I prefer. But most people prefer seven-foot tables. And there's some good reasons for that, too, if you step back and think about it. Think about the person that's just being introduced to pool. 
mm-hmm. a new player, right? We need those people. We right. need new players to replace the outgoing players. Sure. When you introduce a new person to pool and you throw them on a nine-foot table and they just continually bang balls into the rail and can't see any noticeable improvement within a reasonable time, <laughs> that person's going to move on to something else. <laughs> Maybe they go bowling, maybe they go throw darts, something that's a little easier to pick up. So what does that mean? What does that mean when you lose that new player? That means they're not going to buy a pool glove, a cue, chalk. They're not going to have a case, a cue holder, a pool shirt. They're not going to take any lessons from any of these pros. They're not going to join any leagues. It's just a missed opportunity for the whole industry. True. And why? Because you thought they should play on a nine-foot pool table. Mm-hmm. Introduce them to a seven-foot table where they can notice some improvement within a you know a reasonable period of time. They get interested, and they do all those things. Yeah. And that's, that's what holds true. the whole industry up. You have a point there. You know, it, and yeah. it, it's, you know, I guess to take that one half a step, maybe not a whole step further, but a half a step further, if you're holding a, a U.S. Open, meaning keyword being open, um, you're going to provide an opportunity for some of these people that may or may not be professionals yet to go in there and have a chance on a seven-foot as opposed to a professional tournament being held on nine-foot tables. It would be just that much harder. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, I'd like to see the ele- the level of play elevated just as much as anybody else, but um, that that cost factor is gigantic. I didn't realize there was a, a, that big of a difference between the actual shipping, as far as you know, less than half and the same amount of truck space. That's astonishing. And, and, and most people and most people don't realize that. And going to your point, that's a good segue to my next point. You know, I talked about the new player. Mm-hmm. Well. Realistically speaking, the brand-new player is not going to jump into the U.S. Open. Okay, but even the existing players, right? If we were to go out and do some kind of market research, I I suspect that what we would find is somewhere approaching 85 to 90% of the pool players in this country play on seven-foot tables. Hmm. That would be interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Unfortunately, we don't have an organization that can go out and do that research, but I think that's what we would find. Mm -hmm. Those players, and I'm not talking about the brand-new player. I'm talking about existing good amateur pool players, the guys that keep the industry afloat. They, they by and large, do not mind playing higher-level competition. Right. I mean, we see this in tournaments particularly the ones that have dried up now, but we, we see these guys spending $500 to play in the U.S. Open 9-ball. This past year, 750 to play in the U.S. Open 9-ball. They'll, they'll travel and they'll spend money to play the pros, but they just want to feel like they can at least be competitive or even be comfortable sure. with the conditions that they're playing on. And when you put these people that all they have in their hometown are 7-foot tables, and now you have a tournament on nine-foot tables, they are not going to throw their hat in the ring. No, that is true. Because they're, so, they're already at a disadvantage, right? Yes, and these, these people are kind of like me, right? I'm, I'm a decent amateur player. I, I can hold my own. <laughs> Very rarely am I going to beat a pro. 
Right. It has happened on occasion, <laughs> but very rarely. And I don't mind spending three, four, five hundred dollars on an entry fee to compete against these guys. But I can tell you right now, I would not do that on a ten foot table. Yeah, yeah. Why? Because I've never played on a ten foot table. <laughs> And I wouldn't even be comfortable. And I know that these guys will beat me on a nine-foot table as well, but at least I can be comfortable yeah. and feel like I can compete. Yeah. Whether or not I win is a different story. <laughs> so going to a seven-foot table allows a lot more people an opportunity to feel like they can be competitive and have fun, and it brings a lot more participants and a lot bigger prize fund to the table. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It does. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess, like you said, I can see both sides of the issue, but, uh, I think what, what, what we need here is more understanding. I think we need some of these players or some of these fans out there to understand some of the points that you've, that you've made and which I'm glad that you made because they may not, they may or may not have been able to see it from that perspective unless somebody points it out to him. So I appreciate you uh, at least having the uh, the gumption to get on here and defend your, your position. That's uh, Yeah, and, and quite honestly, I mean, I, I have a couple more points. Oh, yeah, go if, ahead, if please. You want me to go through them, and, and I don't really feel like we have to defend it so much as explain it. Yeah, you're right. Because, because I think there is a lot of confusion out there, and people have a gut reaction, kind of like you said you had. Mm-hmm where when you heard that, it just didn't feel right. Sure. You know, a, a prestigious, some people say pro, it's really an open event on seven-foot tables. Mm-hmm. But, but here's the bottom line. High-level pool on either either table, whether you're talking about a nine-foot table or a seven-foot table, is fantastic. One isn't better than the other. They're just different. Right. I mean, for example, on a nine-foot pool table, that requires a lot more precise shot-making but you have larger areas for position. Right. On a seven-foot table, you may not have to be quite as accurate with your shot making, but it does require a lot finer cue ball movement. Yes. It's just different. Yes, that's and it. One, you can argue that one is easier than the other, but they're just different games, and in my opinion, they're both fantastic games. Mm. But here's another point I think is important, and you'll laugh when I tell you this. <laughs> And I know you, the first thing you're going to bring up is our tournament that we have every February or March, the U.S. Bar Table Championships. Ah, yes. Other than that tournament, the words bar table have been banned in this office. <laughs> and, and it sounds funny, but, you know, a long time ago, pool, pool rooms had nine-foot tables and bars had seven-foot tables. Bar tables, bar tables in quotes, I'm using air quotes. Mm-hmm. They were very poorly constructed. They had huge five-gallon bucket pockets. Yep. Dead and inconsistent rails, thick, nappy cloth, beer stains everywhere. That's what people think when you use the term bar table. Yeah. But that's not true anymore. I mean, Diamond has really changed the nature of that. That is Seven true. Seven-foot tables today play fantastic. True. They're just a little shorter. That's yeah. all. Yeah. 
That so is I've, true. I've prohibited anybody on my staff from using the word bar table <laughs> unless they're using the title of that tournament. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's really funny. And you, you know why? There, a little bit of irony to that is uh, I'm going to throw a little historical trivia in here for you because it was right about 100 years ago. And, I mean, literally, right about this time 100 years ago, it was Brunswick that they banned the term um, uh, pool table. They didn't want to hear pool table, pool tournament. That They declared that pool tournament and pool table was obsolete. Now it's pocket billiards. Mm. They did not like the negative connotation associated with the word pool table and pool tournament. So it became pocket billiards and pocket billiard tournaments because just like you said, you know, people had the wrong idea about uh, when, you know, oh, my son goes to pool tournaments, you know. Well, they wanted something a little bit more spiffy sounding like that, a little bit more respect brought to it. You know, and I have to agree. I'm glad that you pointed that out. You're right. The bar table, excuse me, the seven-footer has come a long way. It really has. Um it, the old, you know, Valley Bar Box, um, God, that was an abomination. With that and the gigantic cue ball and everything else, that's just, it's makes me shudder just thinking about it. Yeah, and that's the image that people get when you use the term bar table or bar box. Yeah, yeah, this is but true. But that's not the case anymore. Yeah, no, you're right. That's... Uh, a different and you know, and, and here, here's my last thing I'll, I'll say about this issue. Sure. Um, you know, as it stands right now, pool is a participative sport. Mm-hmm. It's not much in the way of viewership. Not many people pay to watch pool. Right. But a lot of people pay to play. Yeah. What, what I think higher-level players, and particularly the pros, should do is embrace that fact that playing a tournament like this with real good out added money and really good payouts, it's going to bring larger fields, larger prize funds. And, yeah, can, can a weaker player than the typical pro have a little bit better chance of winning a match here and there? Sure they will because they're comfortable and they can run out more frequent, frequently on a 7-foot table than a 9-foot table. So, yeah, it'll happen from time to time. Sure. Are those weaker players going to win an entire tournament? No. That's pretty unlikely. Right, exactly. It's just not going to happen. Right. And, you know, one thing I said to my, my buddy Scott Frost one time, and I said, well, Scott, would you rather have a tournament on nine-foot tables that has 5,000 added or a tournament on seven-foot tables that has 20,000 added? <laughs> Which do you prefer? He said, Ozzy, I'll never ask you another question about it again. <laughs> but, but you know, we had to take a hard look. When we, we didn't just do this haphazardly. We had numerous meetings here in the office to discuss what to do. And when it came right down to it, we had to take a good look at who we are. CSI does a lot in the industry. Yeah. But primarily, we're an amateur league organization. That's the core of our business. And we do hold open and pro tournaments, and we want there to be a connection between both. But 
we're, we've just never really made, no one has really made a good, strong connection between amateur and pro, and there's probably a lot of reasons for that. But one of the good step forward that we think a good step forward to make that connection is to at least have the two play on the same equipment. Yeah. And as hard as people have tried over the years, you're not going to get the typical amateur player to play on a nine-foot table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. We, we should uh, try to give them every opportunity to to want to keep playing, basically. Yeah, and if you look at our U.S. Open 10-ball and 8-ball that we're going to have in July, we're talking about two separate tournaments, a field of 128 players. The entry fee is only 350 with a total prize fund of the two events combined, total prize fund of $107,000. Nice. I mean, first place in each event, assuming a full field, is 15000 second place 10000 That's in each event. Yeah, that's nice, too. But we, but we can do that playing them on seven-foot tables. We could not do that playing them on nine-foot tables. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yep, yep. You got to spend all your money just moving the tables around. <laughs> <laughs> well, you joke, but, I mean, that... Two years ago, that was the case. Yeah. Huge losses. Huge losses. Right. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Ozzy. I appreciate it. No problem. Just uh, one last shameful plug, if I may. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. The BCA Pool League and USA Pool League National Championships coming up this July. That's July 22nd through August 1st. Enter now. Late fees begin June 9th. Don't wait to get your entries in. We really don't want your late fee. We'd rather you enter on time. You do not need to be a league member to play in the singles or scotch doubles events. Let me repeat. You do not need to be a league member to play in singles or scotch doubles at that tournament. And we've also added a juniors division this year. And four lucky kids will earn their way into the BEF Junior National Championships. Awesome. And I want to thank Viking, Diamond, Cyclop, and Simonis for being the sponsor of those events. And I'd like to thank Predator, Kamui, Diamond, Cyclop, and Simonis for being the primary sponsors of the U.S. Open Championships. Excellent. Yes, we should all thank them. That's very nice. And that's all I have to say about that. And that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) All right. Well, that's awesome. No, you gave us plenty of information, and I I just can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know that you guys are busy, you know, trying to save the world and everything, so uh, I appreciate it. You're welcome, and uh, Mark Griffin sends his best. He's doing well. Good, very good. I can't wait to talk to him because we'll we'll, – he likes to talk almost as much as I do. If not more, <laughs> he's one of the people that can keep up, you know. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to getting get back on the phone and, and just bugging the hell out of him. So, all right, well, thanks again, Ozzy. Uh, you guys take care uh, down there in the in the in the crispy hot Southwest, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. Will do. Thanks for having me on. All right, no problem. Take care.
Welcome back to American Billion Radio. This is the Legends and Champions Report, brought to you by Neil's Garage Cabinets of Mesa, Arizona. And uh, this is Mark Cantrell. And I'm joined this week by the one and only Mr. Alan Hopkins. How are you doing, sir? Oh, fine, thanks. How's things going? It's go- you know, it's going good. And uh, all we're doing is we're continuing on our uh, theme from last week of the top promoters in the United States. Uh, you know, so, you know, we've got CSI and the, those kind of people involved as well that uh, are putting on major productions. And I'm not sure that yours is, uh, is, is not the biggest, uh, the Super Billions Expo. Is it the biggest? Biggest for the United States. I yeah, well, about, I, I don't know about outside the United States. It's the biggest <laughs> and uh, it's the second longest running tournament. The United States also. The U.S. Open is the first, and the Players' Championship is the second. Is that right? So how many years have you been doing the Super Billiard Expo now? Twenty-four. Wow. I've also done stuff on ESPN. You know, I've done, put some events on ESPN, the Texas Hold'em Billiards, uh, the Skins Billiards, and uh, the Trick Shot Shows. I put them on, too, in... Uh, in um, in joint with uh, Players International. So you, so really, you you know everything just about that there is to know. I'm sure you learn every time. You you know everything there is to know about putting on a tournament, but not just putting on a tournament. The the expo itself, and that's just a separate animal, isn't it? Almost. I mean, it's got to be two different entities. Well, it's it's the uh, only trade show in billiards today. You know, it's, this is the main trade show for billiards. Uh, you have all the players there. Uh, the, all the top shoe makers in the world are there. Uh, you have the uh, the top table company, you know, Diamonds there. And uh, you have the biggest dealers in the world. You know, Mueller Recreationals, Frank Center, you Tiger. I mean, you have a whole bunch of them there. Uh, over 10,000 people coming through. So, so if you were to, and this is just information just to the average uh, pool fan out there because... People don't know, Alan, what it takes to put on a tournament. And it's real easy to for people to criticize an event. You know, you can do everything right. And then one tiny little thing, uh, well, it was supposed to be 40 VIP seats, it was 39, and that turns into the big topic, you know, where people don't realize how much work and effort goes into these things. So I'm just trying to educate people a little bit of what, what is it that goes into it. So... When you start every year the Players' Championship, what is the first thing you do? How do you begin setting that up? Well, you know, when I started 20-some years ago, basically for the players, uh, for the Pro Players Association and for amateurs, and to have some kind of uh, event for the players they could play in, make some money, and also do some shopping, you know, with the products and billiards. Um, and I'll tell you the truth, it's, it's just getting the support of the players that come and play. You know, I'm a, I'm a Hall of Famer myself, and I've won world titles, and I know all the players and stuff, so I know what kind of tournaments they like to go play in. Uh, so that was easy putting it together. And then what you have to do is make sure then after that is that you have, you know, available seating for the spectators, and that you promote it well um, with the industry. And we're kind of a small industry, so it's pretty easy to promote it, you know. Um, 
And then after that, just make sure it's run well. And the most important thing is make sure the players get paid. You know, a lot of promoters uh, uh, have not been paying the players, some of them, and this is the most important thing. They have to get paid. Right. Yep. You know, yeah. What, what do you think is... Uh, so so when you when you start, genius, okay, the players' championship is going to be on over here. Do you look for the... Obviously, you've got the venue, right? Um, then the next thing... Because I, I, I was talking to other people, and... I do it a little bit different. I just make sure the money's there first before I start trying to put on the event. <laughs> now, my, well, mine, are not, mine are not events like yours, Alan. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to compare my piddly yeah. stuff to yours. But do you look for the money next before you structure the tournament? Or Oh, no. I always have the money ahead of time. The money's always there already. I, uh, I would never do a tournament without the money being in already. The other thing is, uh, is is to make sure that the players are happy and that they get paid because they're coming to play. And uh, the amateurs, uh, they're coming to play and have a good time. The pros are coming to play and, and looking to make money, you know, and people want to see the pros play. So it's hard because there is no there is no televised tour. So it's very hard because most people don't even know who, what, who the best players are. They don't have a clue. A lot of them don't even know what kind of game we're playing. If you look at ten ball, I say, what's ten ball? They don't even know what it is. You know, they don't realize it's just same as nine ball, just one more ball. You know. So, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it is amazing with the lack of TV. People don't know who Darren Appleton is. Some don't, don't know who Shane Van Boning is. You know, you, you talk to people uh, casually in you know in a social situation about pooling. Oh yeah, is uh, is there still playing? Hopkins and Varner, they all still out there? Like, yeah, it's, uh, it's, when was the last time you played, Alan, competitively? Well, it's been about uh, seven, eight years now since, um, since I got divorced. Uh, eight years ago, I haven't played at all, basically, pretty much. So, what is the, uh, as far as running a, a tournament, what's the most common problem that you find comes up, and, and what's the solution? Well, the most common problem is the players getting their entrance fees in ahead of time. A lot of the players don't like to send their money in ahead of time. They like to bring it with them. So it's a little hectic at first because you don't have all their entrance fees in. So you don't know who's really in the tournament, who's out of the tournament, or what. You don't know what the prize money is. Uh, so that's kind of hectic. Then they always have a difference with the rules. Everybody wants to keep changing the rules to favor their game, their, their style game. Um... You know, you have to keep everything uniform, like like golf. When I watch golf on TV, I know exactly how they're playing. Uh, there's no change of rules or nothing like that. Everything's the same. It's always been the same. That's the way it is. Right. And you now you've ch- you changed your tournament. I guess you've changed it to keep up with the times. Well, uh, I a couple of players come to me and said, "We're playing this way now. We're playing that way now." So. I try to keep up with how the pro tour plays and what they do, uh, but sometimes the players themselves don't really realize what's best for the spectators, uh, and they have to realize that, that that's kind of important too, keeping the fans happy. So they want to keep changing the rules to make it better for the top players, but like like the rule they just changed a couple of years ago, I didn't agree with them. You play cold shot nine ball, well. You can't play call shot nine balls. It's not devised that way, you know. 
It's like telling somebody when they're playing golf, you hit a tree and make the ball in the hole, it don't count. You know, you, you can't do that. It's a part of the game that's a little lucky, and you got to go for it because there's shots in nine ball that you play a certain way, and you might make it because you played it that way. You don't know if it's going to go in which hole, but, you know, you play it that way, and you might get lucky. It's just the type of the game it is. And that's all knowledge. That's all knowledge and knowing what to do. That's what that is. And that's why they're, that's why they're pros. The pros know have that knowledge. And um, other players don't like it. They they want to take that away, take it away. You know, you got to stop changing the game. The game's got to stay the same. And you, we need, we basically need a televised tour. Um, simple as that. Because we we can't. The money's just not going to come within the industry and the players. It's it's got to come, you know, some outside source. And we need to get sponsorship. We need to get corporate sponsorship. And we need to get a televised tour. When that happens pool will start to get really big. But right now you don't even know when the pool's gonna be on T V again. I think that's the I think that's the catch twenty two uh of it. You you can't get a televised tour without a sponsor, a major sponsor. And no major sponsors coming in unless you've got a televised tour. Well no we can get a televised tour. You just gotta have a tour out there. Right now they don't have a tour. Uh in nineteen ninety three uh, we had events out there. I had ESPN ready to do three events live, live television, okay, and they were paying for coverage. They were paying to do, to do the coverage of tournaments. We had about 15 tour events. We had a tour out there, and we were playing on a tour. And ESPN was coming in and going to start televising the tournaments and stuff. The problem is the tour couldn't, couldn't survive because of, of all the other money the players wanted. You, you, can't, uh, you can't get all the other money... Um, you know, that's not going to come out of the sky. So you kind of, like, got to try to start doing tournaments like poker does. You know, poker has a tour out there and no added money. I mean, they just go out there and they play. They get volume. You need volume. That's what makes the amateurs so popular. They have volume, okay? And uh, we don't as the pros because it's too tough to compete with the pros, they play too good, and there's, too many, there's not enough players that play as well as the pros to play with them. So they don't have a chance to win. What's, what's your opinion on, uh, following up on, on kind of what you're saying now, what's your opinion that recently there's been a few of these 16-man events, 2,000 entry? Do you think that's the way that we should be going? I don't know. I, I tried to have a tournament with 5,000 entry. I tried to have a million-dollar tournament and raise 200 players. I remember and, that, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, it kind of woke me up when John Schmidt was standing there and we had, uh, we had 11, we had, we had 10 players or, or 12 players and John Schmidt, I said, you're going to get in? He said, well, I don't know, there's a lot of good players in there. I said, John, I said, you're one of the top players too. I said, if you play, I'll play. That'll make it 14 players, you know, and he wouldn't put up his money to play. He said, no, it's too tough a field, you know, um, because everybody was a good player in the field, you know. Really? So, wow. Yeah. Well, for somebody, to me, it just makes sense. Before you yeah. even go there, it makes it makes sense to me that anybody who's willing to put up five thousand of their own money plus, depending where it is, could be fifteen hundred dollars in expenses. If you want to do that, you got to feel like you're a pretty good damn player that you can win that thing. So I wouldn't expect it to be. A, a weak field. I don't, I don't think it's going to be a bunch of dead money. Well, pool shouldn't be a weak field. If you're going to charge people to come in and watch the players, 
There shouldn't be no amateurs in there. When you go watch a golf tournament, a PGA golf tournament, you don't see weak players out there. Those guys are all top players. We have pool tournaments. You can just put your money up and play. Well, that's kind of that's crazy because people are paying money to come in there. They don't want to watch an amateur play. They can't play at all. Play a top player. You follow me? There's no competition there. There's no competition well, I, at all. I, I I do agree with you, Alan. I I agree with you on that. The down the downside to it is you lose that dead money. The prize money goes down, and now the top guys. Is, is it worth it for them to even go if you've got uh you know a three hundred dollar entry and Thirty-two-man field. That's the problem with players right now. Probably the format that we play is probably wrong because it doesn't give a player a chance, and they make the, they make the matches so long uh, that most people have no chance. See, pool is probably the most difficult game in the world. Believe it or not, uh, it's a very difficult game, and you can tell because there's not that many really top players uh, playing the game. Like you know, golf, you got great golfers all over the world. Uh, I watch golf all the time. There's great golfers everywhere. Okay, uh, is the reason is the reason for that, Alan, that the the money's not the same as golf? So I mean, um, I, it's, a, it's an old argument. I hear what you're saying, but do, can you not combat the with saying, "Hey, listen, I'd have my kids in pool school, pool clinic uh, at the age of six, learning how to be a pro if I thought he could make a million dollars in a pool in a pool tournament." No, it's just a pool so much more difficult. Uh, it be, the money has something to do with it also. But, you know, in golf, like, you know, going out and par in a hole in golf, uh, there's a lot of players that can bet they do that. Okay, there's a ton of them that can bet they par a hole. You know, you take you take players around the world, you, nobody, nobody can bet that they break a rack of nine ball, make a ball and run out. Nobody can bet they do it. That just tells you how hard our game is. Okay? Yeah. So all yeah. how great the players play, and there's great players all over the world, Nobody can step to the table and bet you they're going to break a rack and nine ball, make a ball, and run out, okay? But you take a top professional uh, golfer, he'll bet you he'll tee it up and he'll par that hole. They can all right. bet you that, okay? So par, I, I, I put a par to, uh, to run out nine ball. I mean, you know, and, and you, nobody can bet it. Not, the greatest players in the world can bet it. When I was playing the greatest pool of all, I, nobody can bet it. You can't win at it. It's too tough to do. You know, it's funny, you, you, you mentioned John Schmidt, but, um, and talking about the, the old comparison, it seems like it's one of those things that gold is forever ongoing, that people like to compare golf and pool. But, uh, I, I was with John Schmidt, and somebody asked him, because he, you know, he plays golf pretty good as well. Very good golfer, very good golfer. And he said, uh, so he said, do you think pool's harder than golf? He said, yeah. He said, if, if it wasn't, when I drive, when me and my guy I'm playing drive our ball down the fairway, I could go kick his ball behind a tree. <laughs> well, that's, that's not so necessarily the way I look at it, okay? The whole thing in, in golf is if a guy hits his ball down the fairway, in the middle of the fairway, you can get the chance to do the same thing. In pool, if a guy gets up and runs out nine ball, you have to sit there and watch him. You can't do nothing about it. Okay, that's, 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 that's the difference. Okay, uh, I get a kick out of golf because you hit the ball in the water, you pull it out, and you hit it again. In pool, when you scratch, you're probably going to lose. You're going to lose that game. You know, you don't get to you don't get to take it out of the pocket and keep shooting. Follow me? Yeah, uh, it's a, it's a different. There are two different types of games, you know. And uh, I think pool is just so so tough for for people 
that it's it's hard to go go anywhere. You know, it's just hard to do anything with it because it's such a difficult game. And the uh, the format that we have playing playing in tournaments and stuff, uh, the the average player has no chance, none, of being you know winning a tournament. Uh, but they can put their money and play with us, and they shouldn't right. be allowed to. There's no there's no system. To tell you the truth, there's no format right now that tells you if you're a professional player or not. Okay, there's no kind of school that really says, okay, you pass this school, you're a professional player. Well, like in golf, you go to golf school and you shoot under par, you know, two days in a row or something, they consider you pro level and stuff. Um, our format in pool, we don't have that because we're playing against each other. You know, I, I did devise a, a format to to uh, give give players a rating, a Q skill rating, and uh, it involves not playing against anybody. It involves just playing against the table. We have a scoring system running running out the racks. And it sees how many shots it takes you to run so many racks and nine ball and stuff. And it's a plus and minus system, but it gives you a rating after you're done. And the pros, pros always shot uh, somewhere between, like, um, if you're, let's say you're going to a 200 rating, they, the pros always shot somewhere within, like, 170 to 190, okay? Nobody shot a perfect 200, of course. You can never do that. It would be almost impossible for any player to ever do that because it's so hard. But, um, you know, the 170 to 190, where most of the pros were at. And we don't, we don't have a system like that to say who a pro is. Right now what they do is you put your money up to play in a pro event. If you're finishing the money, you're considered a pro. Well, that's so bogus. That's ridiculous. Because <laughs> the draw has so much to do with it, you know. Uh, you get into a tournament that's an open draw. And I remember years ago, uh, me and Siegel might play the first match, and then you got Nick Barner playing some guy from a, a hometown that can't even draw his ball. You know, so me and Siegel are playing each other, and Nick Warner's playing somebody can't play at all. And he moves on, of course, and then me and Siegel, one of us, gets a loss. You know, so the tournaments ain't really fair because a lot has to do with the drawing stuff when you win tournaments. I've, I've, I've been hearing that theory, that theory a lot recently. Um, I, I won't go into it, but I've heard there's... Uh, Somebody's trying to come up with this uh, some kind of system that's uh, going to say, "Hey, this is this. If you can play this, you like at this level, you're a professional player. You're allowed to play in this tournament, this tournament, this tournament, kind of thing." So you know what? That it might be the way to go. The other thing is that it's another variable, and I, I'd, like, I'd love your opinion on it. Is Standardize. I don't think this is possible. By the way, this is a, a must be a, a hypothetical situation. Standardizing equipment, same size pockets, same felt, uh, same table, rails. This is, this is already Diamond has done this. Diamond has uh, Diamond is the best friend of all the pro players, all the amateurs and pros. Diamond has the best pool table out there, and they do everything for the players. They try to standardize the game so the players are playing on the same equipment, whether you're an amateur playing in a bar or whether you're a professional playing on a big table. The tables are all the same. They're just smaller. The balls are the same. Everything's the same. You know, I mean, you got to look it back, you know, um, probably one of the biggest sellers in pool is chalk, okay, because everybody uses chalk, right? Right. They won't give a quarter to pool. They will not help sponsor pool at all. Uh... 
I went to them in the 90s. I asked them, I said, listen, we'd like to make you the official chalk of the Pro Tour. They said, we don't need to. We sell enough chalk. We don't need to do anything. I said, well, we need your support for the game, for our tour and stuff. You know, we just want a penny a piece of chalk or something. Some, some kind of way we can make money, you know, uh, like Simonis did. Simonis supported the pro players. Simonis is, Simonis is the, uh, you know, the pro's best friend. Simonis cloth. So we made it the official cloth. And look at, you know, look how big it's come. And they had the best cloth. They have the best cloth in the world to this day still. You know, and they support professional pool and they support amateur pool. And they're a big, they're a big friend to the players. Well, I'm not, I'm not, um, knocking diamond tables or someone's cloth or, uh, any kind of chalk manufacturer, but did not, not all pro pool events are played on diamond tables. That's what I mean by it being standardized. Yeah, maybe they've got their tables down to a certain pocket width and, uh, the 860 or whatever it is that they're putting on the tables. But then you can go to uh, another tournament. You might be playing on Brunswick's. Well, I haven't seen a tournament yet on Brunswick. Uh, uh, is the World 14 one tour- world tournament the Charlie Williams deal? Oh, uh, the one he has a pool room in New York? Yeah, because oh, someone's having pool rooms that's, as that's well. Out. Yeah, but the reason they were on Brunswick tables is because that's what the guy has in his pool room. You know, uh that's the only reason, you know, Brunswick didn't really sponsor it. They didn't get, they didn't give him Brunswick tables. It's just that Brunswick tables were there already. But the diamond tables, I mean, they they've been uh, supporting pro pool for the last twenty years, and they're the reason pool's still going. To tell you the truth, I mean, without the diamond tables, you wouldn't see a lot of these amateur events going on and stuff. I mean, they have revolutionized uh, pool with the pool with the with the amateurs playing on the same equipment that the pros play on. When you play in an amateur event, like the amateur tournaments I have at my event and, and a lot of the amateur events going around, when you're playing on a diamond seven-foot smart table, uh, you go and play on the pro event on the nine-footer, you're playing the exact same equipment. Everything's the exact same. It's just smaller. And the tables play the same. The balls are the same, you know, the aramid balls. Uh, I mean, all, all the equipment that we have today is very good. And basically, the only table company that's out there supporting pools is diamond. No one else is really supporting pool at all. No, I know, I know. I, it's, uh, you know, I, I, players I, have to realize that. They have to realize diamond is the reason pool is still going. No other table company out there is doing anything for pool. All they're doing is taking money out of the sport and not giving nothing back. Where diamond gives things back to the players. You know, diamond. I'm sorry, but I've, I've lived this my whole life. I was, a, I was, you know, I was a top professional player, and I've, I've done everything and. Thanks to Diamond, uh, the reason pool is still even going. Without Diamond, you know, pool would have died. Pool would be nothing right now. Well, if uh, definitely figured out a way to make it easier to move those tables around the country. Because, um, you know, I, I don't know how many countries there are. I know one in particular that they load up trucks of Diamond tables and travel around the country taking them to BCA, APA, TAP events and unloading them, setting them up. I mean, that's a painstaking job right there, isn't it? How much money do you think that would do? I, I don't know how much money you'd have to pay me to do that. Well, and then when, when all the fun's over, I, <laughs> I, I, you got to take them all down and put them away again. Well, it costs money to do it, you know, and you pay for them. You pay Diamond to have it done. I pay Diamond to bring the tables in 
for the amateur events. And that's where the money goes. You know, when the amateurs come in and they send their entrance fees in, part of that money goes to pay for the pool tables because the pool tables are expensive to bring in. But they're the best tables out there, you know, and the players love them. All the amateurs, all the amateurs and pros love the diamond tables and the Aramis balls and the H60 Simonis cloth. And it's just, it's just nice to play on the best equipment. And, there, and this is what's helping pools still survive right now. No one else in the industry is really helping uh, as far as for the tournaments and stuff, you know. Now, I don't want to know, going back to the promoter side, side of things, and I don't, I'm not trying to get into your business uh, too much, but to put on, I don't care, I'm not talking about what you bring in, that's none of my business at all. Just to put on that event, how much do you think it costs? Well, you've got to know how much does it cost per year to just put on the Super League Expo. And bear in mind to anybody out there listening, that money goes out, and you've got zero guarantee of the gate, the pay-per-view, booths, sponsorships, etc., etc. How much do you think it costs just to put on an event like that? No, well, I don't have to think about it. No, it's over hundred thousand. Well, it's over hundred thousand dollars to spend on. I, I so I thought it would have been more. So I've been I've been a couple times, yeah. And no, you, you guys do a good you do a great job. Uh, you. You, yeah, you moved from the convention center a couple years ago. I had so I had no choice. I yeah, was was that tough? Board. Was that a tough move? Well, yeah, because it was such an ideal location. It was a very good location. And I really like the location. Everybody's used to going there, you know, and it was very well organized there and stuff. And the hotel was right there with the convention center. It's right. Made everything nice, you know. It's just, it was just a nice setup. Um, right. But there's others, there's, you know, there's other setups can be worked. And like where I am right now at the Oaks, uh, I have room to expand. I mean, my event can expand bigger and bigger. Uh, as a matter of fact, next year it's going to even be bigger. Really? That's good. Yeah, right. That's always true. Hey, man, as long as you're growing, that's good, isn't it? You know, it's one of those things. Um, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go down to, let's see, what's our, my final questions here, because I know you're eager to get off to a, a poker tournament because you're, <laughs> you, and, you and Phil, uh, what's his name, are going to be hanging out together. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, a, he, he's a nice guy, isn't he? He's a yeah. nice guy. Oh, yeah. Um, what what do you think? You kind of maybe said it already. But what do you think makes a tournament successful in your eyes? Well, at the end of the day, when the doors close and the prizes funds being handed out, what makes a tournament successful? There's a couple multiples. The fans is one. The players is another. The tournament director another. Uh, all these things have to fall in place together. And uh, the weather, you know, the weather outside has to be okay, too. You know, if you get bad weather, people can't come to the event. Uh, the location. Man, there's so many different things that help make a tournament happen and make it well. Uh, I mean, you take you take the U.S. Open. You know, Barry Berman started his U.S. Open in a pool room. You know, a small pool room with uh, maybe 20 tables. Took it from there and grew and grew and got it bigger and bigger. Uh, and now it's now he holds it in the convention center, you know. So it's gotten bigger for two hundred and some players. 
the biggest. It's the number one event. It's the biggest event. It's the longest running tournament in pool. And then mine, the Players Championship, is the second longest running. And right. these events, you know, these are the events that we keep them going. We keep try to keep the game going. Uh, try to keep TV involved somehow. Unfortunately, it's hard to make any money with television. Uh, we just, it's hard to make, you know, when you when you screen something or uh, try to put it on TV, you're not making any money. Uh, doesn't make any sense putting it on if you're not going to make any money doing it. You know, the players themselves, the, the players in this sport right now, the professional players are the ones that are going to make it happen because they're the ones that really are the game. Okay, uh, we want we want to see them play, and people want to see them play, and they'll make things happen. So just trying to help the professional players where they can play, uh, I think they need to get themselves a tour together and go play all around the country. Uh, go play in beer rooms and everything. Go support the pool rooms. Like the golfers support the golf courses, go support the pool rooms. Go play in beer rooms around the country. And, you know, this added money that pool rooms can't do, you gotta, you gotta, you got to lower that. you got to make it less. you got to find some kind of format where the rooms can make money and the players make money. Simple as that. So you change right. the format. You change the format of tournaments. You make it easier for amateurs to play uh, where it's not so tough for them to be the pro. I remember we had a tournament years ago in Las Vegas where we had the tournament was two out of three sets, two out of three. So you played a race to two. You played two out of three sets. That was the tournament. <laughs> we played we played that a tournament like that. They had over, they had like a couple hundred players there in Vegas just to play that. Hey, I'm going to tell you real quick about something. And I think I mentioned this last week on the show. Have you spoke to uh, Jimmy Mattia all recently? No, no, I haven't spoke to him recently. No, he's playing on a tournament in Vegas in June. June, and it's old school. He's like, I, you know, he is. I don't want to change nothing. I want it to be the old time real pool. So he's a uh, he's a push out and spot the if you scratch, you spot the ball. It's a spot shot, and yeah, mm -hmm. all, all, all that kind of stuff. So I just thought it's kind of interesting. Anything a old school pool tournament would go down these days. Well, the old, the old, the old style pool. Uh, it was nice to protect your money when you were on the road hustling pool. Okay, I mean I played it too. It was nice to protect your money, but when you're talking about trying to get fans out there to watch the game and, and make it exciting, uh, the way to play is the way we play: the one foul kick out. You know, keep it moving quickly. Let them uh, they understand the game. You don't hit the ball; it's ball in hand because there's there's too many other moves you could do playing push out. The game could be last a long time. Really playing push out, the game never has to end, and you can't play a game. You can't play a pool game. You can't put it on TV. You can't have a tour where a game might never end. Follow me. At least yeah. when you play, when you play, kick at the ball and you don't hit it, you get ball in hand. The game eventually has to end. The game will end. So you have to be able to play a game like that, and and it keeps the uh, it keeps the fans excited. You know, they see a guy kick a ball in and stuff. Uh, Look what Ephraim come over here and did, you know. Uh, all the Filipinos come over here and basically sh showed the Americans how you really should play, you know, by kicking balls in and stuff. The Americans didn't have a clue. And uh, they, they taught us uh, the, the way to play. 
looking at the ball a certain way and trying to make it or trying to play safe, the speed at which you kick it, the angle at which you kick it, you know. Uh, they were so far over the American players playing playing nine ball uh, the way you're supposed to play it that they dominated it for a while. Everybody, you, thought, everybody thought it was luck. <laughs> Right, I know. I, 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 remember, I watched. Oh my God! I'm sorry. I'm still embarrassed. You know when you do something and you and you look back and you get cold sweats because you know how stupid you looked. I watched. I watched a match. It was a pro. It was a pro match. I was sat there. I'm watching this match, and uh, again, I was hooked. And he went three rails to get out of being, you know, get out of the snooker, hit the ball, and made the ball. It yeah. was absolute luck. I started clapping like it was, it was the best shot i ever seen in my whole freaking life. I'm like, I can't believe he just made that thing. And, and uh, it, it, I tell you, it wasn't it, who made it. It was uh, Raj Hondal. And Raj Hondal, okay. <laughs> he came over and said, dude, that's the luckiest shot i ever made in my entire life. <laughs> he got shaved and everything. It was bright luck. Yeah. Well, his, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna let you get back to uh, to your life on what you, what you're doing and your poker, concentrating, getting ready for your poker match tonight. And yeah. uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, talking to us. I, I do have a final question after your illustrious career. What is the most memorable moment to this point that you've had in your pool career? In my pool career, yeah, um, winning winning the uh, World Straight Pool Championship uh, in Asbury Park and winning the U.S. Open in the same year, I won the um, I won the straight pool, and then uh, I won the nine ball U.S. Open too. So I won the two biggest events you could have in pool uh, in the same year, 1977. Kind of kind of really really neat. Uh, I've had a lot of great, you know times in my career, going to Japan, winning the world championship in Japan two years in a row. Uh, that was exciting, too. I mean, I got a standing ovation over there. Uh, for 15 minutes, I ran out in the finals of straight pool. My opponent didn't get to shoot, and I don't think they've ever seen that. <laughs> so it was kind of uh, kind of pretty neat. But um, It's funny how people's, uh, people's memories of things and, you know, what – what they remember and, and things like that are sometimes different. Yeah, everything's different, you know, but um, these are just, you know, things I remember about and I thought they were great. Uh, some challenge champion, $50,000. That was, you know, the most money ever won uh, in a tournament playing pool. Uh, that was nice. So, pool's, pool's been good to me. I mean, it's been a, it's been a nice career. It was you got to remember, before I did that, I went out and I played pool all around the country, actually, to make a living doing it. So that, that made my game a lot better. Well, it's good that you, you know, I don't know, this sounds might sound awful, I don't know. But it's good that there's people like yourself who have been involved in, in pool at a high, very high level, world-class world level, are able to, after the party's over, so to speak, are able to make a, a living, a good living and a career out of the the game of pool and billiards after you're out of the actual playing. 
And I don't think there's a lot of people who've been in that position to be able to continue to make money. Do you know what I mean? It's very sad. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very unhappy about it, to tell you the truth. Uh, even though I've, you know, come this far and make a living, you know, from my show and stuff, uh, I should be able to make a living playing pool. I was one of the greatest players of all time and, and can't make a living playing pool. Uh, it's a shame. Uh, I'd like to be playing on the seniors tour. Tell me. Like I watch golf, I watch the seniors tour in golf where they're still making money and stuff and playing. Well, I basically can't even play because there's nothing for me to play in. Follow me? Uh, it's right. Sad. It's really sad, and I feel sorry for all those other players out there who really, you know, didn't do anything else. They thought they were going to be okay just playing pool. Unfortunately, that's not the way it is. And that, that that's what's sad about the young kids today playing. That's why I, I don't really like to push it too much. You know, they they got all this they got all this. Uh, junior school stuff and all these things for the juniors, but what is there really for the juniors, okay? Where are they going from there, okay? You've got to understand the most important thing in billiards and will always be the most important thing. Help the pros get a pro tour. You need to have that. They don't have that. doesn't matter what you do for the juniors and stuff because when they get older, there's going to be nothing for them. The most important thing is a pro tour, for the players. That's why we keep doing tournaments for them. We try to put tournaments together and stuff, but it's just so hard to get them organized together. Yeah. It's, uh, it, again, it's, it's so expensive for a little payback uh, at the end of it. You know, it's, it's, like I said earlier, if your son is uh, 12 years old and can uh, shoot 72 going around in golf, Mm-hmm. Oh, and or it can run two reps in a row. Which career do you have him follow or encourage? When I was 12 years old, I ran 110 balls. Okay, it didn't mean nothing. Uh, I remember I got a, had to pay five dollars for a membership to the BCA. I paid the five dollars to be a member of the BCA for what? There was nothing to play in. They had one tournament a year, the U.S. Open Straight Pool in Chicago. Okay. That one tournament that made it look like it was the greatest thing of all time, you know, if you played in that, you did well, you were, like, famous or something. You know, well, that wasn't the answer, you know. Uh, the answer is a tour. You need to have a tour for the players. You need a season. Players have to have a season where they go and play pool. Every sport has a season. Basketball, baseball, football, soccer, everything. All have seasons where they play tennis, you know, bowling, Pool doesn't have a season. You don't even know when pool's going to be on TV next. If you do, it's probably going to be something recorded from years ago. Yeah, is it, is it tough to have a season with pool, though, across the country? Not really. You put the, all you got to do is put together, like, uh, you know, 16 to 24 tournaments. Put them together. and I mean, we had a tour years ago. We were playing 15 to 20 tournaments a year. And Richie Florence was doing some events, Barry Berman... Uh, you had other promoters um, up in Detroit. You had some promoters doing events. You had some promoters down south doing events. I mean, we had tournaments all over the place. Up in north, and Mike Zyrus used to run, you know, the, the Eastern States Championship. We had tournaments all over we were going to. Uh, they just couldn't keep surviving because they couldn't make money. It was just no, there was no support behind it, you know. So it, it died out, you know, and then the players want more added money. 
you know, you can't, you can't, you can't get the money. If the money's not there to get to, you can't give it to them. You know. Yeah. So they have to themselves. The pro players themselves have to sit down and put together some kind of format that helps the promoters to make money and the players to make money. Once they get that and they can start playing in tournaments all over, then you never know who will get involved. You never know what sponsors will get involved. The whole important thing is just go ahead and do it and get it done and make, let it be out there. Uh, you know, golf golf didn't start by getting big big sponsors right away. Golf went out and did their tour. They had their tour. They used to play. I remember golfers used to play for 30000 first prize back in the uh, 60s. They played for 33000 first prize, 29 second, 27 third thousand, you know. But they started out small like that. Now today... Showing show, show your age a little bit there, Alan. Oh, yeah, I'm old. I'm a little guy. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> I'm older. You know? I, I can't hide that, you know. Uh, I'm going back a ways, you know. Go back a long ways. So, um, it's been a long career. My mom was even born then. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a hard time. That's Okay. <laughs> Uh, well, listen. I, I I appreciate you taking the time and your uh, input and insight. I, I say every time, uh, every time we I do one of these interviews uh, with somebody like yourself, there's always something there to be learned, and maybe mm-hmm. you know, uh, maybe sometimes we're all on the same page. Uh, how we get to that next level with a, a pro tour is that's uh, that's the $10 million question, I guess. The, so, only thing that, the only thing that's going to make these players a living, that's going to help them where they can make a living playing pool, is to get together and get themselves a pro tour up that's not going on out there, where they can play in tournaments every week. I don't care how much it's for or whatever. Just got to be able to play every week, keep going somewhere and playing, uh, and put together a tour together. And don't change the rules everywhere you go to suit the players, you know, to suit who wins this tournament, you know, and, uh, I'll never forget when uh, when I had the million dollar nine ball and Corey Duell won it and Dennis Ricola and Shane Van Boeing come in second and third and they were mad. I, I said, what's the matter? They said, well, he shouldn't be allowed to break the balls easy. And I said, what do you mean? Everybody put up a $5,000 interest fee. There's no, there's no rules on how you have to break the balls as long as you hit the one ball first. Well, they said, well, we practiced hitting the balls hard and he should have to hit them hard too. <laughs> so I said, so I, you know, this is how we did this. So I, so I said to him, I said, well, what are you trying to do? What is the object you're trying to do on the break? Okay? And they looked at me, and they didn't know what to say to me. Dennis Ricola and Shane Van Bowen, probably, you know, one and two player in the world, looked at me and didn't know the answer. I said, aren't you trying to make a ball and run out? I go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. I said, well, Corey's doing that, hitting them easy. I said, so maybe you should learn what he's doing. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, just don't hit him so hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's like telling Tiger Woods he has to hit a driver off the tee. He can't hit a three iron because they all learn to hit the driver, so he he shouldn't be allowed to hit the three iron. You know, you don't tell nobody how they have to break the balls. You start the game by hitting the one ball, breaking them open. Corey Duell hits the one ball easy and makes the ball and runs out. Learn how to do what he does. Oh, in that, in that, um, in that, uh, actually. Now I'm thinking about it. Isn't that something that kind of started to hurt pool a little bit with sponsorship? Now I could be just going by rumor, but didn't Earl walk out of a, an event, a final, a televised event? 
because Corey was hitting him soft. Earl's not good for the game. Everybody thinks he's really great for the game. He's really not because he's a big baby. And it's like a baby when he loses a match. I remember watching the Russian player uh, run uh, Levin Ratchet out on him. He wouldn't shake his hand. You know, the guy just has no class at all. You know, he's probably he just has to grow up a little. Uh, pool is a very difficult game. If Corey Dewell wants to break the balls easy, more power to him. Let him break them easy. It's his turn to the table. As long as you're playing rotate breaks, what's the difference? Play and rotate the break. You get your turn at the table, and I get my turn at the table. If I want to take my turn breaking them easy, trying to run out, then that's my that's my turn. Okay? There's no uh, there's no suggestion. Why do you have to break the balls hard because your opponent wants you to? <laughs> that's why I changed the rule of racking your own balls. You know, and the ball don't count on the break. You know, uh, you rack your own balls, you break them. You make the money ball, it spots back up, you keep shooting. It's the only way to play. Racking your balls for your opponent is really not fair. I never really thought about it like the, the way you're saying it with Corey and the, and the soft break business. I never really thought about it that way, but it's the same thing. I mean, see Pete Sampras in the tennis, if he all of a sudden decided he just wanted to, like, tap the ball instead of doing a 100-mile-an-hour serve, tap the ball over the net, and Andrew Agus is on the other side, and it's shocking him, going, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? Because he can't hit like that if you're serving properly. No, he done. <laughs> he's done. He's done I'll tell you how ridiculous it is when Earl walked out on Corey doing that. If, let's say, I don't know if you gamble or not, but, you know, I've gambled my whole life playing pool. I made a living out of it, you know, for like 15, 20 years. And if I was playing somebody gambling and they started breaking them soft, and I ever said to them, oh, I can't play you. You break them too easy. I quit. I'm not paying you. Where would that get me? That would be so crazy, wouldn't it? Or else right. people walked out on Corey because Corey's a better player than him. He just he didn't want to face it. Corey just plays better than him, and he couldn't stand it. You know, so he wanted to make Corey want to change something. You know, act like uh, it has to be. He has to play like like Earl plays. You got to do what I do. You got to break them hard. You know, Corey was beating and breaking them easy. <laughs> so so what does that tell? So if Earl got in a money match with somebody and they started breaking them easy, he's going to walk out on them. Is that what he's going to do? <laughs> You see how ridiculous it is? You see how ridiculous it is what he does? It's ridiculous. Yeah, and yeah, I, I, like I said, I never really uh, yeah. looked at it that way. I just looked at it that, you know. But Corey is, yeah, he, he actually has changed the game in in some areas. Because I, I know you're saying, don't change the game. Leave the game the way it's supposed to be. And that's your... Uh, you see, your theory on it, and that's in your opinion on anything. it. He didn't change anything. No, but he nothing, did. Nothing was ever stopped from breaking them. You can break them easy. You could have broken them no. years ago too. What, no, but what he changed is what, here's what I think happened. Look how many times they're having a break from the box and three ball, uh, two balls past the head, head string, and things like that. That's happened. That's become a rule. Breaking from the box and getting two balls, uh, making two balls or making two past the head string, something like that. It's only There's a some... rule. It's only a rule because the players are complaining about Corey. There was never a rule before. Listen, years ago we used to play break behind the line. Okay, so I learned to break from the side, make the make the head ball in the side pocket. I was playing in Alabama, and I beat Varner in the finals, and I made the head ball uh, every time in the side pocket. Well, I made that because that's a skillful shot. It's not a lucky shot. It's a skillful shot. 
Well, after that tournament, the players got together because they figured if they're going to let me keep breaking that way, I'm never going to lose a tournament. So they got together and they said, well, we've got to break from the box. Okay. So that takes that one ball and a side out. All right. That's, what, that's how the box came into play. Okay. See, I go back a long way. <laughs> I go back a lot of years. All right. And this is how this all happened. And this was back in the 80s, you know, where they started making players break from the box. Well, just because you break from the box, don't mean you have to hit them hard. But Corey learned to break from the box and hit them easy and make a ball. So now they're going to change it to where you say, okay, you're going to make two balls go past the side pocket. Well, this is bogus, okay? This is ridiculous. When you break the balls to make a legal shot in pool, you hit a ball and the ball hit a rail, right? Isn't that a legal shot? Yeah. Yeah, that's a legal shot. Okay. So why are you telling somebody now when they break them, they've got to make two balls go past the side pocket? Because they don't want Corey soft breaking them and making a ball and running out. Everything is always trying to favor the players who win tournaments. They're trying to they're trying to change things if they lose a tournament. Why don't and, let me ask this? Why don't as a professional player you see that the first time? Why don't you start doing it? Or teach yourself how to do it. I got news for you. If I was if I was playing again competing, I would learn to do that. I would do it. I learned when I when the Filipinos came over here. I learned what they were doing and used it against them, and they didn't like it. I would learn what Corey's doing, too, and use that against him. I would learn to do that. It's not that hard to learn, okay? Um, why not? <laughs> tell you the truth. Why not do it? I have no problem with that. You always find a way to win, okay? and, and as long as it's legal, you know, I mean, not cheating. And, uh, yes, Corey can win soft break, and they can't beat him that way. I don't see nobody looking to play him, do you? Uh, well, he, no. he just got into, he just got into uh, well, he didn't know much, but I think John Mora, uh, uh, Canada, you know John Mora? Yeah, I know he, John. He's a great player. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he wasn't happy with uh, Corey with the eight ball. Uh, did you see that break he was doing? No. I, and Corey's a, very, Corey's a very clever player, okay? Yeah, uh, he's a genius with that rack. I've said it for as long as I can doing nothing to the. He's not doing nothing to the rack. You, you can rack him for him. You know, he's not doing nothing, but if he learns to do something with the rack and he breaks the ball legal and stuff, uh, you learn to do it. That's all. Uh, that's why Tembo takes that break away. You know, Tembo takes the soft break away. That's why I think Tembo's a better game, you know. Um, actually, rotation's the best game to play, you know, if you want to find out. Can you imagine trying to break and run out rotation? You know, uh, not many players can do that. You know, n nobody in the world would ever bet on that, ever. Okay, forget they can't even do nine ball, but trying to bet your break and run out rotation. Okay, uh, this is how difficult pool is. Pool's a difficult game. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember, I remember when I was over in I was over in England and Earl Strickland was bragging about how great he was. You know, we're all sitting around the table. And, and, no, and, no, Earl, he doesn't do that, does he? Yeah, he was bragging. We were all sitting there, me and Steve <laughs> and Rippy and Mattia was there and the Spanish Mike and and uh, finally, you know, I, I got tired of listening to him. You know, because I know how, I know how it's bullshit. He has to tell you the truth, but uh, I said to myself, "Listen, Earl, if you really think you're so great, I said, okay, I'm just going to let you bet. I'm going to bet you that you can't break 15 balls and run the table without missing. You've got to call all your shots. I just bet you can't break and run the rack." And he got real quiet. I said, "Now I know all the guys in this room. I know at least six guys here that'll bet that." I said, including myself. I said, "Now if you're so great, and you're so much better than everybody here." That means you can do it, too, so let's go do it. I'll bet you. He didn't want to go do it. He couldn't do it at the time. Follow me? 
Right. Yeah, I couldn't do it. When you're a top professional player, you'll bet on doing that. Any any top player will bet they can do that. But break a run, rack of balls and bet they can run the rack and call the shot without missing. Okay. I'll still do that to this day. You think you should still do that? Yes, I can. Are you, are you are you playing or what? What's going on? Are you are you still yeah. hitting balls around? You're just not playing tournaments. I hit balls. I just know where to go play. You know, I, I don't go playing. I don't go play because I know where really to go play. And I've, I've had some. I've had some personal issues here at the house to take care of, but um, th- those seem to be getting straightened out. And I'm planning on going to Vegas. Uh, I'm planning on going to Vegas and playing Mark Griffin's tournaments. Oh wow, that'd be good. Yeah, I'm planning on coming out there. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Well, maybe I'll uh, I'll see you out there. Yeah, I just got a lot of years on me now. I remember now, I'm a senior citizen, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get you one of those Walker things. I may, <laughs> I may break the balls easy, like Corey. You know, hoping he'll get yelled at and stuff. You know? <laughs> but then I'll put you on a shot clock or anything. He might take you ten minutes to get around the table these days. Who knows? Well, a shot clock, a shot clock is probably something that you know. In nine ball, there should be a shot clock because nine ball tells you what to do. You know, uh, it, it's a silly, it's a, it's a game that tells you exactly what you're supposed to do. Okay, now if you're playing one pocket or if you're playing straight pool or you, even if you're playing eight ball, you have to think about things. You have to think because there's so many things you could do, and it does take a little longer. But nine ball, no, nine ball, one minute shot clock, no problem. You know, you should be able to know what you're going to do within one minute. Right. Yeah, because it tells you what to do. It's all execution. Nine ball is execution. That's all it is. Yeah, that's easy for somebody like you to say. So uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Alan, again, thank you very much for your time. I do appreciate it. And uh, thank you for everything you do for the sport. I know that uh, a lot of people make a, a conscious effort to take yep. vacation time and things like that to come out to your event every oh. year. So um, I know a lot of people appreciate it. I, I appreciate it, too, and, and thank you. Uh, I try to do everything for the players, okay, because the players are the sport, okay? The amateur players, the kids, the pros, they are this game, okay? And we support the industry because the industry helps us, you know, and uh, we want to all get together that's why I started the Super Bowl Expo. I wanted everything under one one roof, the industry and the players, and uh, that's why it's been such a big success. And that's what helps make make it a big success. It's right. it's heaven. It's it's pool pool heaven all under one roof. <laughs> sure it, Alan. Thank you very much again, and uh, you take care of yourself. You and uh, hopefully we'll speak again soon. You'll see me. I'll be out in Vegas in uh, July. You got it, buddy. Bye bye. Well, that's it. The Legends of the Champions Report for this week. Uh, this is Mark Cantrell. Spot brought to you by Neil's Garage Cabinets of Mesa, Arizona, and our gracious guest, Mr. Alan Hopkins. Uh, nobody can dispute what he's done for the sport. I will uh, speak to you all next week. <laughs>